This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. As the year draws to a close, we're once again seeing a repricing in rate markets that is putting in a greater potential for central banks to ease policy as soon as early Q2 next year. Now, the central bankers themselves will tell you that's very unlikely. The fight against inflation has not been won. Higher for longer still is the mantra. But we have some indicators that capture the coverage tone in the financial media of what central banks are saying, what they're doing, and how it's all being discussed as part of the broader media narrative. And that's what this week's podcast is all about because those metrics, they're on the move right now. And they have been hawkish for the better part of two years. They are now moving back to neutral. And for many central banks, the reading is now scoring as a net dovish coverage tone. Not a dovish central bank message, of course, as I've just said, but a coverage tone. My guest today, Gideon Ozik, is a co-founder of MKT Media Stats, who we have developed these metrics of central bank coverage tone in partnership with. They've done a lot of work in looking at the media coverage around a central bank and what information that offers, as opposed to just trying to analyze the central bank communications themselves. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Gideon Ozik to Street Signals. Thank you, Tim. Happy to be here. Very good. Let's get into it. Media stats does get some attention on here, particularly with the central bank indicators that we're going to talk a lot about today. But I wondered if you could briefly reintroduce what media stats is. Let me give a quick introduction. We collect textual information from approximately 150,000 sources every day. This information is like a snapshot of the entire internet stored on our servers providing us with millions of relevant articles each week. And why do we do that? Uh, our primary goal is to identify the narrative that investors are paying attention to at any given point in time. You know, we are limited. People are actually limited creatures. And as limited human beings, we can only allocate attention to a very small set of topics at any given moment. Therefore, measuring attention is important, and especially so, in the context of financial markets. Because asset prices move, if either traders, portfolio managers, analysts, strategists, of course, or journalists pay attention to them, we want to be able to measure whether people pay attention to inflation right now, or have they moved their focus away from inflation and onto some other narrative, such as military escalation in the Middle East or corporate uh, earnings. We track attention to thousands of narratives across various asset classes, markets, geographies, and source types. Quantifying narratives allow us to develop various applications, including narrative maps and including uh, narrative asset betas, which can enhance our understanding of risk and returns. Can you talk about then, especially with the respect to the central bank coverage tone indicators that we've discussed on this podcast before, but that I really wanted to focus in on today, just given the movements in them that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. I'm going to ask this, this question a lot. Like, Explain this to me like I'm a really small child. Like, How you are doing this? How are you scanning the media, particularly with respect to the central bank coverage tones? What goes into that and, and how does it all work, I guess? That's, that's an excellent question. So 
Let me take a step back, though. I mean, why it's important even to start measuring these central bank uh, indicators? Well, there's no doubt about the importance of understanding the views of central banks on on monetary policy and economic conditions, such as inflation and, and the strength of the labor market. But there are some challenges, and here's where we think we can help. Well, first, the communication from the Fed and from other central bank, uh, it's actually pretty similar. Uh, it's its ra- rather infrequent. While there are additional sporadic communication, such as speeches and congressional testimonies, uh, the direct information flow from the Fed and from other central banks as well is generally limited. Mm. Now, there's a question of opacity. When information is finally released, interpreting it, uh, it actually, interpreting its meaning can be challenging as well. A press release uh, the coming out of the Fed would typically undergo rigorous scrutiny by the policy department of the Fed, communication department, PR teams, and the legal and risk teams as well. So as a result, the information content uh, often becomes diluted by the time it reaches the public and, of course, market participants. So that's kind of where why we started this, right? How can we improve things? That's, uh, I think that's the main question here. So we analyze uh, media coverage of monetary policy instead of the official communication of policymaker. Media covers uh, monetary policy every day, and the journalists are less restricted insofar as content they, they produce. The hypothesis starting all of it is that we can actually learn more about monetary policy by systematically analyze the, the media coverage of monetary policy uh, than, than just reading the statesman directly. Specifically to your question, how do we do that? Okay, We organize this information in, in what we call reservoirs. And, and when we look back at these reservoirs and we try to see how much, how many articles are there over, let's say, the, the last uh, 10 years or so that actually cover individual banks, central banks, and monetary policy, we see that there are hundreds of thousands of individual items. So that's all already a kind of good starting point. So what do we do with this uh, wealth of information? Uh, we then identify uh, the section in the text that refer to the policy, and then search around that text for terms related to either hawkish or dovish uh, policy. The monetary tone is then processed by the relative occurrences of hawkish and dovish terms, and that sort of like give us the score. If we find more hawkish terms in the text, for example, you know, the text is about the Fed, you know, raising rates, uh, you know, that will be a hawkish term. For each uh, relevant item, we score this uh, with these terms, and then we take the like the ratio between hawkish and dovish per central bank each day, and we have a score. So that's really the magic. It's very simple, but I'll show you that it's, it could be very powerful, actually. Uh, we do that for six, 16 central banks, including, of course, the major, the, the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, uh, other developed markets as well. But we also go when data is sufficient, and it seems to be sufficient for even some emerging markets, such as you know Turkey and, and, and Brazil. That gives us uh, a solution for the two problems that we had that we started with. First, we get this information every day. Yeah. So we don't have to wait, you know, six weeks uh, for the Fed to actually communicate because media actually talks about this continuously or you know, almost every day. Mm. And then we're able to to decipher, 
you know, what the media thinks and what the media project uh, without the restriction of, you know, the structure of the Fed, the institution themselves. So, you know, the, for the media reflects on what people think. The media reflects on their sources, perhaps even from the central bank themselves. And it is more free to express opinions and interpretations, which is actually very good for us because that's exactly what we want to have. We want to have a wealth of information and opinion that then we can analyze and come up with, with a score. At this point, I'm going to have a little interlude and put my strategist hat on and talk actually about what the indicators are saying, because it's very interesting. Actually, I wrote the, the piece this week that we put out every couple of weeks that deal with central bank coverage tones and how they're trending. And, and actually, up until very recently, they hadn't changed that much because the balance of language used to talk about the Fed and other central banks has been consistently hawkish. And even two weeks ago, when the prior document was written, I think you only had two central banks in this panel that were scored as dovish, and that was the PBOC, who are in easing mode, so it makes sense that they'd be dovish. You also had a very, very small dovish bias to the Bank of England, which maybe makes a little less sense, but we also think they're basically done hiking rates, so not as hawkish at least. But everything else was scored as hawkish. Interestingly, the last couple of weeks, almost all central banks other than I guess the RBA is one, the SNB is another. They're all scoring net dovish, not aggressively dovish, but dovish nonetheless. And again, this is the first time this has happened really since monetary policy not was beginning to be tightened. In fact, as we will maybe talk about in a moment, coverage tones were getting more hawkish before central banks actually acted. It wasn't even the, the need for them to start talking about hiking rates that coverage was starting to become, I think, a little bit more predictive of the rate hikes that were coming. Now it seems like you have central banks that are all talking about, no, inflation is not dead yet, higher for longer, not talking about rate cuts. And yet you have these indicators all moving back to neutral and now into dovish territory. Can you talk a little bit about the predictive nature of these, what have we seen in working on them? And why does that matter so much when you see a move like this as we're seeing right now? This is an excellent question. And this is an opportunity to thank you as a distinguished co-author <laughs> for the first of two papers uh, that we put together in that subject. The By the way, that's my only academic publishing credit to date. So I'm very proud of that. I'm honored uh, that you were able to contribute. And I think what you brought there in terms of like the actual understanding of the markets, uh, I think set apart this uh, piece of research as opposed to more uh, you know academic papers sometimes uh, are very uh, theoretical. But let's let's dive into the results, okay? Yeah. So what did we find? There? We we were able to measure the tone of the central bank. We focus on the paper on three central banks: uh, the the ECB, the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of England, and and we 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 observe the the tone. Then we, we measured a few things. Like we, first, we looked at whether the market actually reacts quickly uh, to changes in tone. And what we find is that actually the market is underreacting to changes in tone, especially in non-FOMC weeks. Okay. So when, when the Fed speaks, you know, during these FOMC weeks, everyone pays attention. And it seems that any information that comes out is immediately absorbed by the prices, by yields. However, we continue to measure this tone in between meetings, and we see that the market sort of like ignores them to some extent. 
And that's important because the first sort of like the prediction exercise we've done is we look at these changes in tone uh, between meetings, and we saw that they were able to predict the yields a few weeks uh, a few weeks ahead. And that the prediction actually turns out to be very strong. The other things that we found in that first set paper was that these results are not just uh, you know with the Fed, but it's actually happening across different markets. So in we tested Europe. And we tested uh, uh, the sterling markets, but also different and different yield types. So we looked at the treasury yield, the short term, the long term. Of course, there's different uh, reaction there to the tone. Uh, but uh, you know, we look at the swap curves as well, and we see uh, consistent results uh, overall. The second sets of results, we said, well, wait a second. It's it's interesting to look at the tone of a given bank, but these given banks. You know, there are actually people working there. There are policymakers uh, with different opinions. So we were trying to use the same methodology, but instead of sort of looking at top down, we look at it bottom up and we were able to measure the tone with respect to the media coverage of the individual policymakers. So, for example, you know, what Powell is saying, we're able to look at what the regional presidents, uh, how they at least how the media project on them relative to DC governors and, and so on, voting members versus non-voting member. And that gives us, gave us a bit more uh, sort of like degrees of uh, variation, even within individual bank. And we saw that actually that could also help uh, to improve the prediction. Sort of like you think about about 25%, uh, 25 to, to 45% additional predictability that comes from understanding the cross-section of voices rather than uh, the voice of the of the bank uh, itself. Something struck me as you were discussing that, and particularly when you mentioned the Fed governors versus the, 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 the board and the chair, the vice chairs and the regional presidents. But actually, I want to ask a question about sort of the cross-section of these indicators, because of course, a lot of these central banks they don't necessarily move in lockstep, although actually, to be fair, in, in many economic cycles, it does look like they do. But in this cycle that we're finishing, it would seem, this rate hiking cycle, the starting point was interesting in that it was very different. And yet all of these indicators started to trend, in this case, more hawkishly at similar times, not completely the same time. Do you think the question I'm getting at is, do you think there's a common element in the media discussion of these individual banks or individual members that guides it almost as much as the message from the individual bank or individual themselves? So I think it's an excellent question. It actually reminds me a question we had uh, back in May from one of the clients attending uh, attending the breakfast we hosted in London together. Mm. And, and, and actually, we looked at following that question, we, we actually looked at the data. And the answer is that you have a, a, a common component, but then you have idiosyncratic bank-specific component as well. So that's that it's definitely the case here. Uh, and what we've done, uh, sort of like as a side project, just to, to think through this, uh, this question that came up, uh, is that we looked at, you know, which one explained better the, the changes in yield, let's say in the UK. Is it the common component represented by the Fed that we yeah. did, what we've done? Or is it, or is it the specific uh, BOE tone? And we saw that there were each one of them is important, actually, in so far as predicting yields. The next step of this is something that's really interesting. In that, just as background for those listening, 
what Gideon's described in terms of its construction of a media stats indicator is using natural language processing to determine coverage level, coverage sentiment, things like that. But of course, in the five or six, seven years we've been working with these indicators, there have been significant advances in artificial intelligence. The usage of artificial intelligence is, I think, pretty clear when it comes to working with large data sets like this. And that's where I kind of want to head next with this, Gideon, in that what we have and make available to clients, and this is not a sales pitch. I mean, it sort of is, but nevertheless, we don't want to necessarily have this just be a plug. But what we have right now are these original indicators that you and I have discussed. But we are looking at some enhancements, I think, using some of the tools that have become a lot more mainstream, particularly large language models. And I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about the work you're doing, employing that to perhaps refine and improve future versions of the media stats indicators. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's start with the, with the limitations. We see that the simple approach that I described has done pretty well in terms of predicting you know, future changes in yield. It actually has uh, shown very strong contemporaneous correlation uh, between you know, changes in yield and changes in tone that happen at the same time, which means that these measures are relevant. But we also know that this, uh, like the original, let's call it the basic measure has some limitation. For example, uh, things like double negation. You know, if I think about a Fed statement that goes like, let's say, the Fed rejected the idea of not raising rates. Okay? <laughs> that is something that is uh, actually uh, very difficult to resolve if you're just looking for terms. Okay. Yeah. Now, so this is one problem, but this problem is actually more general. If you think about complex language structure, and I'll give you another example. Let's say that the statement or the article goes uh, as uh, the Fed decided to slow the speed by which it lowers rates, okay? If we, if we just use the simple measure that we discussed, it's actually going to be very difficult to get the actual information content out of it. Now, uh, here's where large language model uh, come into play and can help us. The hypothesis is that uh, LLMs with their superior language comprehension capabilities can better handle this complexity. And we want to be able to take advantage of the advancement in AI technologies and LLM uh, more specific. Uh, we wanted to understand which uh, of the lang large language model could be helpful. So we, we tested a few of them. And then go the good thing is that we have a very strong prior with this uh, basic uh, measure that we discussed earlier. Yep. So we use one of the approaches was to use zero shot. What is zero shot? in LLM uh, lingo, it's actually, you take a model that is uh, very powerful, uh, was trained on trillions of uh, tokens and documents, and you trust it that, the, that it understand language to a very advanced degree, okay? And then it's not trained for your task, but you assume that given the, the, the richness of the model, it will be able to help you score, you know, textual content. But what we've done really is we took the hundreds of thousands of items that are related to individual banks and describe policy. And in addition to score them using the general approach, we gave it, we, we, we submitted them uh, through an API to, uh, to two individual models. 
Yeah. One is the GPT 3.5. That's, uh, you know, the very famous <laughs> open AI model. And then the other one is the Llama 2, which is actually sponsored by, by, uh, by Meta. So the idea was there is very simple. Take that text. We know how we scored it using the original approach, but just tell us what you think, really. Is, it, is that text more hawkish or dovish and to what degree? Okay. So we have two measures that are, uh, we call them zero shot, as I, as I mentioned, and, and we can now test them, uh, you know, their performance relative to the general approach, okay? Uh, the basic approach. Now, the other approach that we've taken, so now we have three models in play. The fourth model that we wanted to test uh, is a fine-tuned model. And, and what it is, we, we, we looked at the model that is called Roberta. It's actually a much older model. It started 2019. So 20, like three or four years now in this uh, speed of advancement is very old. <laughs> yeah, it's <right>? ancient. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, uh, exactly. And then this model, we trust that it understands some complexity of language. But what we've done is, we, uh, you know, we trusted the understanding of, of this language, the structure of the language and complexities, but we trained it or, or, or it is further trained where to specifically score text related to monetary policy, to, to perform specific tasks, in this case, uh, the task of scoring monetary policy on the continuum of hawkish uh, to, to dovish. And then, of course, there are trade-offs. Uh, one thing that people, like more from the practical perspective, people have to keep in mind is that it's actually very costly to run this model these days. Okay. Uh, the resource, the main resource there is computer power, GPUs are becoming more expensive, you know, clouds uh, providers uh, that understand that there's so much demand, they, you know, they, they increase the prices. So there's the economy of cloud and processing and GPUs that it's in the background. You know, if you have millions of, of items that you want to run through these models, you know, you have to budget for them. As opposed to uh, the more basic models that is open source, you can train it, and you can process the uh, same amount of items, but it will be uh, much cheaper uh, uh, to do so. Then we had we had to come up with criteria. How do you actually evaluate whether it does well? You know whether model does better than than another. Here we take advantage of the very strong prior we have from the initial research. We understand we know from the uh, Gen One, the, for the first generation, that in order to um, establish relevancy you want to find contemporaneous correlation between changes in tone and changes in yield, okay? No prediction, mm. just understanding that the tone is relevant, okay? That what you measure is relevant. Uh, so that was one thing. The second thing that, that we test is the ability to predict future changes in yield. So which one of the models actually does better job? One thing that, that I want to mention here, the models are actually, if you look at the time series of the tone, we actually see very, very high correlation, which I think is reassuring. Even the, the simple model has high correlation with the more nuanced model, yeah. which, which I think that's it's reassuring. Uh, so that's the first thing. Then in terms of the results, we find that one of the zero-shot model, the OpenAI one, tend to do better than the other one, both in terms of the contemporaneous correlation, the relevancy, and in terms of uh, uh, the ability to predict future changes in yield. But we find that the fine-tuned model, which is actually a lot cheaper to run, is, is doing almost as good, depends on what parameters, 
with the with with the OpenAI model, mm. and we find that the other large language, mo- like the the zero shadow, the Lama two model, actually tends to do uh, worse than than these two, and sometimes actually worse than the even basic model. So you know, a lot of the time you get results which require more research rather than yeah. have, have a, a very definite conclusion. This is definitely one of these cases, but we definitely see the value incorporating this, these technologies, uh, improving the precision, improving the predictability. And we think that definitely this, uh, this direction is a direction we, we have to pursue. Actually, where you finished there, which is talking about the improvements you've seen I'm curious, as you take a step back from this, you have a really good test case of employing large language models towards making that improvement. But I'm curious to just get your personal thoughts on this as far as, is that incremental improvement at this point worth some of the costs and the limitations that you've talked about, whether it's cloud space and computing power, all these things that that cost money. I think that's, you, you brought that up and I think it's really interesting that there are costs of doing business here. And if what we're seeing are incremental improvements that you know have economic meaning over a long period of time, I suppose it's easy to say, yes, that's worth it. But what do you think about that? Are, are we just on the cusp of a potentially transformative movement here in using this work? Or is this mostly fine-tuning at this point and perhaps not always cost-effective for every use case where it does seem to be effective in this use case? Yeah, so this is an excellent question in the sense that it goes beyond just like the uh, you know the the analysis, but also think thinks about it more in terms of economic yeah. environment. So my view is that uh, the costs are going to go come down significantly, mm. and you know I think about it as you know the shortage in computing power is more a temporary a temporary shock. I my view is this cost would come down. There's competition is coming in. You know, hardware uh, providers are coming in. Uh, more uh, models are coming out, and 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 I think about if if we if we have to think about one year uh, to uh, you know a few years down the road, I believe the cost is going to be uh, much uh, lesser than it is today. I think I think we can rip a lot of benefits from using uh, these technologies, and I tend to think about it in three different dimensions. The first one is just being able to better measure. Okay, mm. so that's one of the example is that the one that we discussed today. We were able to measure a central bank tone to some some uh, good degree, but using these technologies, uh, we can improve it. The second thing is I think we are able to increase the speed of innovation. So if we want, for example, one of the discussions we've had over the past few weeks is how can we improve. Both the FX indicator and the and the stock level indicators, you know, sentiment and even sentiment with with respect to different themes. And here we can do very quickly. We can take the understanding of the models that are available to us right now and start to think about things like: Is the text more forward looking, discussing like the prospects of a company mm. or or the prospect of uh, asset prices in the market, or is it backward looking? describing things that already happened. You know, this is something that will take us a lot of time to develop in the past, but now, you know, we can actually accelerate the speed of innovation and provide newer, you know, product with new elements. 
So it's not just improving what we're doing now, it's just producing uh, uh, new things much more rapidly. And the other thing, the third element is just improving our own workflow. I mean, Tim, we've been working a lot on kind of defining themes. I mean, it started a few years ago when you guys asking us, well, can you tell us what is the attention right now, the media intensity toward trade war or mm. toward, uh, you know, uh, inflation and things like that? Uh, uh, we actually had to go and 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 think about what each one of these topics means and and define the logic, the textual logic by which such text could be identified. Right now, we let the machine uh, do it for us, and that accelerates. So now. You know, we started with like three themes. We were able to accelerate to 50 and 100. Now we are able to generate thousands of themes and also be adaptive to emerging themes uh, much more quickly because we don't do it manually. We let the machine, sort of this large language model, tell us how we should define these topics and, and, and move forward more quickly. So just to summarize, like, you know, costs will come down, I'm pretty sure. And with all this benefit, both improving measurement, increased speed of innovation, and being able to improve our own workflow, I think it's be is something that we definitely have to continue uh, pursuing. So I'm mulling this over, and as a final thought, this makes me, as a strategist, very pessimistic about my own future. However, I'm very optimistic that I'm going to have tons of podcasts to do about this topic, because there are, I think, about eight different episodes I feel like I could pick up on this. So I'm just grateful for the first one, Gideon. This is the introduction, folks, to the topic of AI and the use of it within our indicators. I have a feeling it's going to play a huge role, and it feels quite transformative for what we potentially can do with this just based upon the improvements we're already seeing in one set of information that we're using so Gideon, I have to thank you for my future career as a podcaster, I guess, because you're giving me a lot to work <laughs> with. For everything else that you've discussed today, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's been great to have you on as a guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to number two, three. You said eight, so seven more to come. At least, at least. The machines will tell us how many we will do, but we'll, we'll <laughs> right. get there when we get there. Thanks so much, Gideon. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. 
The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.